Good morning again. If you have your Bible, we'll be back in James 1. After a, a week hiatus to Psalm 34 while Aaron Householder was here preaching for us, which I trust you were all blessed by that. Um, let me pray and we'll get underway here. Father, we thank you for the time we've already had here this morning together, the time to worship you to set our hearts into the right frame, to tune them up, to hear from your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving in our midst, for, um, for making us worshipers in spirit and in truth. We ask now, as we look into your word, that you would continue to move, that you would uh, change us, so that we might be more like Jesus. Change us so that uh, we might cultivate deeper trust, greater appreciation for uh, you and, and the wisdom that you have in all things that you do. Um, I want to lift up our little congregation, especially this morning, just pray that uh, you would reduce the distractions, and uh, help us to make the most of the time that we have here because the days are evil. And it may not be that we're always able to gather together on Sunday. So let us appreciate it while we can. Pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) The last time we were together, we looked at verses 5 through 7 of James 1. And my overarching point was that the reason we don't judge our trials correctly, to whatever degree we don't judge our trials correctly, the reason is that we lack wisdom. Wisdom in the context of a trial um, enables us to see things outside the framework of human limitations. Godly wisdom, which begins with the fear of God, allows us to interpret difficulty differently than a lost and dying world does. So wisdom in the context of a trial could be defined as the ability to judge our circumstances using more than the five human senses that we have. You'll remember I said human senses, um, sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch are present things. They're for detecting what is right in the moment going on. Um, That makes them somewhat insufficient by themselves for detecting and understanding spiritual and eternal matters. Second, wisdom in a trial could be defined as the ability to judge our circumstances in a supernatural light. Remember, for the Christian, difficult circumstances are not proof that God hates you or is judging you or is punishing you. When you shine the light of the gospel on your suffering, rather than punitive, suffering begins to look like pruning. Now, pruning is painful, but it is proof of the care of the vine dresser, which the Father is. Third, wisdom in the context of a trial could be defined as the ability to judge our circumstances 
on supernatural grounds. Remember, the value of a sorrow and the possible outcome of a sorrow changes when death is no longer the end of the story. So an empty cross and a vacant tomb prove that God is capable of working beyond this life, prove that he is at work beyond this life and that the scope of his work reaches beyond this life. So even if your trial ends with your death, it does not mean that God has somehow failed or you have somehow failed to properly meet the trial. The way Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, which is a pretty familiar passage because he's quoting uh, the Old Testament. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, parentheses, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying where it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, I think a lot of us are going to emerge from whatever door we go through leaving this life and going into the one to come. And the first thing we're going to notice is uh, the incomprehensible ecstasy of not having pain anymore or sorrow anymore. That alone will make us forget what was just moments ago in time. So that said, wisdom could be defined as the ability to judge our circumstances on supernatural grounds. So what does wisdom offer in a trial? Overall, it affords us the ability to properly count or consider the trial, to reach the right conclusions about it. How do you know if you lack wisdom? Well, if the trial is underway and you're in the midst of it and you can't find any joy, it's probably that you lack wisdom. Or if the trial's underway and you know that you're supposed to have joy and so you kind of like give lip service to the joy that you know you're supposed to have, but the truth is you can't find it because it's buried under a mountain of anxiety, you Lack wisdom. Now, that's not going to incur, like, I'm not going to come tell you that while you're in the midst of suffering, probably. And I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind, like, who's especially dumb here this morning, okay? What I will come tell you when you're suffering is you do need wisdom. But I'm not going to tell you, it's because you're dumb that you don't understand what's happening to you. When you're in the midst of profound sorrow, what I have said was that while joy doesn't replace sorrow and discouragement in a trial, it most certainly coexists alongside discouragement and sorrow. There is joy. If you're a Christian, no matter how bad it gets, there is a part of you that won't let go of this truth. Jesus loves me and he's for me. So whatever else is happening here, I have a friend, someone who sticks closer than a brother. If there's only sorrow, you lack wisdom. The good news is, James said, if you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask God and he will supply it. And here's where I made what I think was our kind of our key statement. That the confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling 
from God. I talked a little bit about the fact that um, most human beings, when they find themselves in a position of power or um, advantage over another human being, and that other human being asks you for something, a miserly spirit tends to rise up in us. And I said that's not the case with God. And to prove it, I took us, brilliantly, to the most unlikely example in the Gospels of this truth, that the confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. We went to Matthew 15 and we saw this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and cries out for help because her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And Jesus ignores her at first. I think sometimes God wants us to figure out how much we want something we're asking for. So he allows us to ask a few times. I think also sometimes God wants us to actually take note of his supply. I mean, to prove it, how many things have you whispered prayers to God for and never thought of again because you got what you needed? There are those times when Jesus is pleased to say wait or be silent. I can't help but wonder if part of it's not just the enhancement of your persistence in asking. Anyway, Jesus is quiet. She asks again, and he compares her to a dog, uh, which certainly sounds like reviling, right? But it's not like a dog in the way that we would describe someone of the opposite sex who we're not attracted to. He's calling her a dog in the goyim Gentile way, the same way that the Jews referred to all Gentiles. He's describing her in terms of her lack of religious credentials. What business do you, Dagon the fish god worshiping Canaanite woman, have asking me, the son of Yahweh, the son of I am, for anything? Now, the statement was, The confession of need to God never produces from God reviling or reluctance. This Canaanite woman confesses her need. Jesus ignores her. She confesses her need again. He pushes back, citing her lack of credentials. She does not, at this point, begin to argue her worthiness. She confesses her need again. And he marvels at her faith. I said last week, and it was a throwaway line, but I thought about it afterwards, and like this is actually quite profound, so I think the Holy Spirit gave it to me. There are two things in Scripture that I can find Jesus marvels at. Belief and unbelief. He marvels at her faith. If we confess our need, God supplies what we lack. So not not only does he marvel at her faith, he heals her daughter. I don't think we are to take from that prescriptive encouragement, okay? I'm not saying if you have enough faith and you pray hard enough, God will give you whatever you're asking for. To prove it, there are cemeteries. Did that happen because somebody wasn't praying enough? Or is that our all, all of our ultimate resting place, unless Jesus comes back. More notably than physical passing needs, 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That alone is incomprehensible. Why should he? Why should he have forgiven you 10 years ago for the thing he knew you were going to do 10,000 more times? Because the confession of need to God never produces reviling or reluctance from God. Thank God. So in the midst of a trial, when we discover that we lack wisdom, we should ask God to supply wisdom, which he will do graciously, generally in the context of the trial, we find that we cultivate wisdom. So the way I say it is, I wish I had had the wisdom immediately after the trial, before the trial. That's not the way it works. I needed it before the trial, but I didn't know I needed it until the trial. I didn't ask for it until the trial. I didn't get it until the trial was almost over. But I asked and he gave it to me. I don't know how many of you did this, but I went through a season of my spiritual journey where I didn't ask God for wisdom because I thought if I didn't ask, I wouldn't suffer as much. Uh, Yeah, patience is the other one. Do not ask God for patience because then he'll give it to you, but the way that he gives it to you is through testing. Anyway, not the point. God gives us senses by which and light and grounds upon which we can rightly consider our circumstances. That's wisdom. You can consider your circumstances correctly with the wisdom that God gives in the midst of a trial. That brings us to verse 9. We're not done talking about trial. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, I'm going to be unkind uh, for just a few minutes while I set the table for us to understand who Jesus is talking to. I have only myself in mind, though I am going to say you, right? I want you to identify yourself in that, not me identifying you in that. I want you to identify it because I'm identifying, okay, here we go. If you are poor, you tend to imagine how much better you would serve God if only he would relieve the stress of being poor. Furthermore, your poorness is probably never your fault. If you are rich, you tend to imagine you got there through some discipline or shrewdness of your own, Your prosperity is probably always your own fault. Mm -hmm. Trials tend to increase the contrast, okay? So when you're poor in a trial, sometimes your discontentedness grows to the point of bitterness, envy, and victimhood. Let's, I, I want to graciously give you all a moment to stop thinking of the person I'm talking about and put yourself back in the light here. When you're poor in a trial, sometimes your discontent grows to the point of bitterness, envy, and victimhood. You've just been dealt a bad hand in life. People are against you. The world is against you. The government is against you. And Trump is your only hope. (laughs) 
Everyone else is cheating. You were tricked into your current situation. Poor folks tend to think that their poorness can't possibly be the result of their own selfishness, short-sightedness, or laziness. It's actually remarkable how much pride you can find in the heart of a person whose circumstances should serve to humble them. Right? I mean, arrogant poor people give more unsolicited TED Talks than anybody else. Certainly more unsolicited TED Talks than anyone who's ever paid their bills on time. I'm, I'm telling you, I know. You know how I know? You know. Pridefully destitute. They will brag about what a hard worker they are, give advice, and confidently instruct everyone around them and just as quickly turn to bemoaning how oppressed they are by the unfair world. Poorness is no virtue. There is nothing intrinsically glorious about being poor. When you are rich in a trial, you're just surprised. Every time life is hard, just shock, right? How did your diligence, shrewdness, and personal discipline fail to steer around this circumstance? Oh, well, never mind. Throw some money at it. When this doesn't work, take a few mental health days. Make an extra appointment with the, with the life coach or therapist. Post on social media about seasons of contemplation. <laughs> the importance of having an emergency fund or perhaps something about how your grandparents struggled so mightily and now you're really starting to identify with them. <laughs> Fingers crossed, the wealthy person in trial grows steadily more anxious the longer the trial goes on. So you try a new diet. You remodel something in the house or redecorate the whole thing. You buy something nice for yourself. Whatever needs to be done to stave off the nagging suspicion that your wealth may not be the result of your brilliance. After all, you do it. Wealth is no virtue. There is nothing intrinsically glorious about being wealthy. The rich and poor alike are eager to be pleased with themselves. That's my point. And I know because I've been both. Well, I thought I'd been poor. Turns out there are over a billion people on the earth who live on less than a dollar a day. So I have a device in my house that makes it cooler or warmer. Mm-hmm. Probably not poor. The rich and the poor alike are eager to be pleased with themselves, but it's not so with the Christian. At the base of the cross and the foot of the throne of grace, we are all equally destitute. I said when we began, James, that this book is like a Proverbs of the New Testament, a lamppost shining light on the path that we are taking through this life. And here's a perfect example. James is helping us understand the purpose of trials, how to make the most of them, and he inserts these remarks about poverty and riches to establish that no one is exempt from suffering. But even more, he inserts these remarks to help the rich and poor alike see what needs to be laid down to allow steadfastness to have its result. Pride makes us misjudge everything. Pride makes us misjudge everything. Poor person. Stop glorying in your temporal poverty, imagining that your circumstances are proof of your virtue. Oh, 
look how I'm suffering. God must be really impressed. You should be too. (laughs) Wrong. Rich person, stop glorying in your riches, imagining that your wealth is proof of your virtue because trials come for poor and for rich alike. Amen? Amen. Esther was born to Levi and Riva on January 15, 1914 in the Dutch town of Middleburg in the Netherlands. At the age of 18... After completing her education in 1932, she moved to Amsterdam to study law. I probably don't even have to Paul Harvey this story because none of you know who I'm talking about. That's all right. I'm going to do it anyway. It was here she eventually met and became a kind of patient to Julius Speer or Spire, who I, I think we would liken to her therapist in modern day terms. Back then, there wasn't so much therapy, um, which is too bad. The two became friends after she took a job as his secretary. So she's probably 24, 25. There's no certain dates, but she'd been in Amsterdam five or six years. She took a job with uh, Julius Spire as his secretary, and they became friends. And then uh, he began to to kind of uh, counsel with her And probably this is the reason why she began to write a journal. Likely it was his suggestion. So Esther's diaries begin in 1941. And Julius's influence on her is kind of obvious as you're reading through because you see that she's contending with depression and what she calls um, egocentric episodes. And she's dealing with these things with his help. Now, right away, all of us are like, oh, I know what that's like to deal with depression and egocentric episodes. This is, history didn't begin with you in the 1990s or 80s or 70s or 60s or 50s. Here's somebody who was contending with depression and egocentric episodes uh, in the 30s and 40s of the 1900s. Speer introduced Esther to the Bible and specifically Augustine. A Jew, I don't know that Eddie ever became a believer because I haven't finished her diary, but she certainly grasped biblical principles of Christianity, which I think we should all seek to take hold of. However, one of the things that her journals recount is the ever-increasing anti-Jewish measures imposed by the occupying German army and, army and the growing uncertainty about the fate of people who had been disappeared. You can, as you read through her, her diaries, you just, like, it, it takes you to the moment where if Frank just quit showing up, it might take us three weeks to figure out something was going on, and then we'd reach out to his daughter, and her number's shut off, and then we go to the house, and it's vacant, and we're like, oh, that's weird, and then if Roy then disappears, and then Kevin and Carrie disappear, and then I disappear, you'd, you'd be like, what, what, what is happening here? But there's nothing in the news, nothing saying, yeah, the government is disappearing people. So there'd be this slow build into profound concern over what's going on and why doesn't anybody seem worried about it. You really get this as you're reading through her writings. What happened to these people? So as well as forming a record of German oppression, Her diaries describe her spiritual development and this deepening faith in God that she has. Eddie 
E-T-T-Y was her nickname, uh, had the chance to escape Amsterdam in June of 1943. But she chose to stay because she believed she had a duty to support others scheduled to be deported to Westerbork, to the concentration camps in, I'm sorry, from Westerbork to the concentration camps in occupied Poland and the concentration camps in Germany. So imagine this. The, the situation with the government run amok and now invading other countries hasn't yet affected you directly. You still have your passport and the ability to move around. You've observed other people have lost that freedom and those privileges. You have the chance to flee. She stays. On July 5th, 1943, Eddie's personal status was suddenly revoked and she became a camp internee along with her father, mother, and brother, Mishka. Eddie Hilsom's parents are recorded as having died on September 10th, 1943, suggesting that either the journey to their internment camp or immediately upon their arrival at the internment camp, they were killed. Miska Hilsom remained in Auschwitz until October 1943 when he was moved to the Warsaw Ghetto, where, according to the Red Cross, he died before March 31st, 1944. So they were all shipped off in September of 43. Miska is dead by March of 44, Etty was murdered in Auschwitz on November 30th, 1943. So she goes from having her freedom revoked to dead in fewer than three months. While she was in the concentration camp of Westerbork, she wrote these words. These two months behind barbed wire have been the two richest and most intense months of my life in which my highest values were so deeply confirmed I have learned to love Westerbork. On September 7th, 1943, two months before her murder, she threw a postcard with her final words out of a train it was later found by Dutch farmers. She wrote, opening the Bible at random, I find this, the Lord is my high tower. I'm sitting on my rucksack in the middle of a full freight car, father, mother, and Mishka are a few cars away. In the end, the departure came without warning. We left the camp singing, thank you for all your kindness and care. Knowing that Eddie had the chance to escape all of this and like a modern day Moses chose to stay with her people instead makes it that much more meaningful when you read the following excerpt. Eddie Hilsom wrote, if you have a rich inner life, if you have a rich inner life, there probably isn't all that much difference between inside and outside the camp. Monetary poorness, when experienced by someone who understands the riches that they have in Christ, is no obstacle 
to glorifying God, possessing joy in the midst of a trial. Monetary richness, when experienced by someone who understands that they have been crucified with Christ, humbled by the discovery of their own sinfulness and redeemed by God against whom they rebelled, rebelled. riches do not elevate them above anyone else. You understand this when you're in Christ and you're wealthy. Indeed, whether you are inside or outside Auschwitz, there is not much difference for the one who has Christ as far as the joy and the steadfastness they experience within. So James says, the poor should glory in the riches they have in Christ. The rich should glory in the humility they have found in Christ. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What an appropriate season to preach this particular text because as you're driving to church this morning, if you come the way we come or anything remotely close to it, which I think you have to to get to Springfield, you've got to drive by some cornfields, right? Mm -hmm. They're either gone or about to be. Six weeks ago, they were green and flowing in the breeze. How quickly that happened. Poor people don't live forever, so it stands to reason they too will fade away in the midst of their pursuits. Amen? So what's my point this morning? Or what do I think James's point is? When, not if, but when trials come, the Christian needs to have an eternal perspective. Jesus did not come, listen, listen. Jesus did not come to improve your life. Jesus came, told his disciples to follow him, right? Jesus came, he told his disciples, follow me, and then he went to the cross. And he's come and he's told you, follow me, He's going to the cross. Rich or poor, the call of the gospel is not a call for self-improvement. Your life may be breathtakingly hard. I don't know. Maybe you cried yourself to sleep last night. Maybe you're struggling to believe there's any grace left for you. Maybe you think God's punishing you. Maybe you're starting to lose the grip on the last piece of hope that you have. Maybe you just see sorrow and darkness everywhere you look. The Son of God, if you will believe him, If you will trust him, if you will cling to him, Jesus will give you riches that won't pass away in a place where moth and thief cannot get to them. Joy, which cannot be snuffed out by the most painful circumstances imaginable, but he will humble you first. He has to. He's got to break your infernal self-confidence. He will take everything from you if he must so that your hands, now empty, can take hold of his. The poor will boast in the riches of eternity. The rich, we will boast in the humiliation we have suffered to be brought to faith. Poor and rich alike will only have eternal life because of Jesus Christ. Poor and rich alike will have eternal death without Jesus Christ. So Eddie Hilsom wrote, if you have a rich 
inner life, there isn't all that much difference between the inside and outside of a camp. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If I can do all things through him who strengthens me. James would have us, rich and poor alike, glory in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, you think this is all boring or kind of stupid or perhaps it's meant for someone else, I want you to just remember one thing for me. I hope this sticks in your brain like the worst kind of burr imaginable so that 50 years from now you think of this. Jesus Christ died to save sinners from their sins and the judgment which will come when you, like everyone else, die. Flowers, when the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, fall and its beauty perishes. You're going to die someday. You are going to die someday. You will stand before the one who created you and all things, and you're going to answer a question. I believe, ultimately, one question. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you believe him, trust him, and seek to obey him? Or did you dismiss him as as the fantasy of wacky, unenlightened people who don't read enough? How will you answer that question? For those of us who know Jesus Christ, we know how we're going to answer it. We're going to say, I clung tenuously at times by faith to him because I knew he was my only hope. We need to turn away from sin and unbelief and cry out to Jesus in our hearts. Ask him to save us from even the remnants of sin that still cling to us, who've been walking with him for 20 years. And I promise he'll do it. Because the confession of need to God never produces reluctance or reviling from God. But James is reminding us, rich and poor alike, your hands need to be empty if you're going to cling to Jesus. Trials have many purposes, and certainly one is to help us open our hands so that we can take hold of the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. Amen?